0: Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. Episode two, I interview Dr. Megan Miller. Megan has her PhD from The Ohio State University in Applied Behavior Analysis. She is part of the hashtag do better movement with Life Tribe. She breaks down how to compassionately address challenging behavior. And she gives us three really helpful tips on how to do that. If you are a classroom teacher, special ed teacher, BCBA, a parent, You do not want to miss listening to Dr. Miller. Hey, Megan. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining our Mindful Literacy podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm
1: so excited about this podcast. It's such a needed topic area, and I'm looking forward to learning more from the different interviews you're doing.
0: Yeah. And well, you're one of the first people that I wanted to interview because I've been watching you and I've joined your hashtag do better movement about professional development with behavior analysts. And the people I work with at school know that I'm sort of a closet behavior analyst. I'm not a BCBA, but my PhD is in applied behavior analysis. So, um, it's kind of like a running joke with us. It's like, don't send me challenging behavior because my passion's with teaching kids to read. But sometimes if you don't address that challenging behavior, like all the time, then you can't (laughs) even get to the reading piece. Yes, exactly. Um, And we know each other from our our doctoral program at Ohio State, and I don't think I've seen you since. So it's been fun following your journey.
1: Yeah, it's been really great to reconnect over the past few weeks, especially. um, And I'm excited, like I said, to see now that you have a Facebook group and a podcast, I'll feel like I can follow you more closely, even though I'm in Florida and you're still up in Ohio.
0: Yeah. And I remember in our uh, program, I remember just observing you because you were you were running a business while you were getting your PhD. And I was just in awe of that. You know, coming from the classroom, I was like, wow, look at this lady. She's <laughs> running a business, getting her PhD. And then I remember, I think we worked on a case together. I think you consulted with me on one of, with one of your behavior analysts on helping one of your students or your clients read. Um, so that was really cool to be able to collaborate like that. That
1: was really cool. And it's funny that you say that because I was in awe of you and I wasn't even a parent yet, but just like that you were doing your PhD and had children and then especially once I had Taylor, my son, after I finished the PhD, I'm like even more
0: in awe of you because I think it's harder (laughs) to raise a baby than run a business, (laughs) but. It totally is. And I also, I don't know if you feel like this too, but, and again, like you have way more knowledge of behavior analysis than I just have the fundamentals, but I feel like it's harder to be a mom with all of the behavior analysis knowledge that I have, like I get inside my own head and I feel like I make it harder for my kids and for myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes that happens. The harder part for me is convincing my husband of, you know, could you just follow my lead? (laughs) Like do this because it will work. But he actually, he does things pretty behaviorally himself. The problem is he's more of like the traditional behavior analyst. And we'll talk about that a little bit, I think today, but so he does some of the things that I've um, stopped doing in the field, and that I train people not to do. And he's hardline trying to do those things. So that gets a little bit tricky sometimes.
0: Yeah, and I think it's tricky when you're when it's your own flesh and blood, and your emotions are involved. It's very complex. Yes. Um, and my oldest daughter is almost nine now, and she's always been precocious. But now she's got has two younger siblings, so I'm over there going, "We're putting that on extinction. Totally ignore that." <laughs> <laughs> which is hard for her, but I feel like good a good lesson. <laughs> okay. So you're here to talk to us today about dealing with challenging behaviors with compassion. Yes. And I know one of the main hot buttons for teachers, or I should say one of the curiosities that they have is how to deal with challenging behaviors. And particularly in When we're remote learning, I think it's become even harder where they can see their kids and and it's even harder to reach them. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about the tips you have for us today. I'm looking
1: forward to sharing them. It's always a little tricky because this topic is something I can do whole days or longer of workshops and trainings on to talk about. So trying to, you know, kind of pare it down into a, a podcast episode or a short discussion can be difficult, but hopefully it'll be. Some things for people to think about and uh, try to maybe go learn more after they listen to the podcast, or even I've had a few people, oh, I never thought about something that way, you know they'll say that, and it that's all it took was just hearing you know one different viewpoint on something, and then they were able to push forward and do things a little bit differently,
0: yeah, I think it's really important to have a community to bounce problems off of because again whether it's your own kid or a kid in your classroom or kids you're working with one-on-one, sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees and you need someone to help you shift your perspective. Yeah, very true. So, um, when
1: for me, the way that I've kind of done that, because I don't know, like in the school system, you typically have other teachers you're working with, or even if you're a behavior specialist, you have different people you're collaborating with. But for a lot of behavior analysts, which is primarily what I where I've worked, I'm a kind of unique, sort of the opposite of you, where I have the same degree as you, behavior analysis and special education, but I've never really done much with the special education side. So I've done teaching, um... At a very like maybe like five percent of ever <laughs> anything I've ever done in my career, uh, and most I have worked in classrooms and tried to to help you know coach and train people within the classroom, but I haven't ever had to be responsible for you know twenty kids at a time or anything like that. So I um, it's hard to have a community. A lot of the times when you're working as a behavior analyst, because you're just going usually into families' homes, or you might be in a clinic working one-on-one, or you're going around to all these different schools and coaching and training people, but you are, you're you're the expert. You're the person to like help people figure things out, and you don't necessarily get to just bounce ideas off of anyone else. And Even if you're working for a company with multiple employees, most people work from home, and especially now with COVID and everything, so you don't really get to sit down and, and problem-solve and brainstorm with people like you would at if you're working in a school day to day or a job where you have like an office with people coming in and out. So,
0: yeah, so just to clarify so, okay, so I'm an intervention specialist and sometimes I'm responsible for conducting a functional behavior assessment, which is to figure out why the child is demonstrating challenging behaviors. And then I have to write a behavior intervention plan based on that. So, in a lot of districts, I feel like the, the field is coming along where a lot of bigger districts are now hiring board-certified behavior analysts to help with that. But in some smaller districts, we don't have board-certified behavior analysts. And the, and the responsibility is on the intervention specialists who may or may not have that, the training necessary to do those assessments. In some districts, we would call in in contract with people who do have their BCBA. And so your role really is to train those BCBAs who then come in the school and help teachers come up with those behavior plans. That's a
1: big part of it. Sometimes I work directly with the schools, just just kind of depends on what their resources are and who's available. So I've done both, but it just really depends on how they what their structure and their um, a lot of the times their funding and things like that too. Okay. So with doing this over the years, basically ever since I started in the field, I have really had a big focus on how do we make sure that when we're addressing challenging behavior, we're doing it in a way that's beneficial for the learner in the sense that their challenging behavior decreases, but also not Aversive, not so traumatic for them, because a lot of the procedures I was trained on early in being with involved in behavior analysis were pretty traumatic. <laughs> to be honest, like we we did a lot of um, really you know hand over hand prompting a learner who was resisting us, and I did a lot of early interventions. So we had like two and three year olds, and we would just sit and kind of hold them in a space and make the work happen. And um, before I even had my son, I had started back in like 2007 to see part of it. I mean, I'd like to say it was just my own realization that this just didn't feel the greatest, but it was really, I had some learners that they weren't responding to typical procedures. So I had to problem solve and troubleshoot that. And it ended up creating more humane and compassionate um, methods. And then I just started applying that with all of my learners. Then after having my son four years ago, it really even further entrenched my ideas about making sure that not only when I'm training behavior analysts, but also when I'm training teachers or intervention specialists, that we are really looking at how is what we're doing affecting this person? What's the qualitative experience for them? Because I would never... Let people, you were talking about earlier the emotional aspect of being a mom. I would never let people do some of the things that I was trained to do with my clients with Taylor. Like, that's not, that would have never happened. And that's part of the back and forth with my husband sometimes because he wants to do those things. And I'm like, no, we're not doing that. So,
0: yeah. And I'm thinking too, the qualitative, and you're, re- we're really talking about like, like the meta behavior analysis. It's, and I talk about that a lot. In my work in the school, like, we're not just teaching kids, we're teaching the adults, we're teaching teachers, we're teaching parents, whether, I mean, that's just an innate part of the job. But I think a lot of times we didn't realize that going into the field, like, oh, this child isn't responding, then I need to change what I'm doing. I need to change my own behavior. Yeah. So. I don't know if you want
1: me to go ahead and talk about the top three things that I've found for addressing challenging behavior compassionately. If you want me to go through those yeah. now or?
0: Sure. And I think you're talking about too. You're, you work with a population who have severe to profound autism, correct? That's your. Typically, but I've, I've done, I've run the gamut. Like
1: I've worked, all of this would apply. I've had learners who didn't even have official diagnoses that are in like mainstream classrooms who just for one reason or another are causing difficulty for the teachers. I've, um, I've worked with learners who have to be homeschooled because their behavior is so intensive that the school system wouldn't be able to handle it yet. So the nice thing about the, the three ideas that I came up with for us to talk about today is regardless of how intensive the behavior is, it really could apply to any situation where a student is
0: doing something that interferes with their learning. Okay, and that's the whole reason why we do a functional behavior assessment. Exactly. Let's I can't wait to hear what you have. Okay, so
1: um, again, like I said, this is something that I could talk about for hours. So I tried to like narrow it down to these three main ideas. So the first one is recognizing that function is important, but it's not the only thing that matters. And the reason I have that in here is because a lot of the times, for behavior analysts and for schools and intervention specialists or whoever would be conducting a functional behavior assessment. In your training, you're taught, you need to figure out the function. You need to figure out why a learner is engaging in challenging behavior. And then there's an explanation of different reasons that could be. So it could be that they're trying to escape from a demand. They don't want to do their math work or their writing or whatever. It could be that they're trying to get the attention of the teacher. They just want constant attention from the adult in the classroom it could be that they want to go access a preferred item like they want to be on the computer the whole day or it could just be automatically reinforcing meaning um some of the self-stimulatory behaviors that we can think about like if you know pacing around the room or flapping hands for myself I tend to like play with my hair (laughs) so there's just all sorts of things that people can do that's just reinforcing in and of itself So those are the four that a lot of people when they get trained on functional behavior assessment will learn these behaviors are happening for one of these four reasons. What we're starting to find out though is that it's rare for someone to just do something for one reason. Like if you're escaping a demand, you're escaping it to go to do something else, right? Um, So that's part of this. Like it's important to understand that things can be interacting with one another but the bigger piece for me is that to really comprehensively and compassionately address challenging behavior and shift that challenging behavior from something that's interfering with their learning to a skill set where they're growing you need to look at the bigger picture so sure these things might be maintaining that challenging behavior and it's exists, it's continuing to persist because they're contacting maybe if I don't want to do my math work and I throw the worksheet on the ground and I go stand in the hallway, then that's, that's pretty much going to guarantee that every time a math worksheet comes out, I'm going to throw it on the ground because I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> but if you only address that, if you only look at, well, we'll just keep the math worksheet there, the, the student doesn't get to go in the hallway anymore. It doesn't get the whole picture. Well, what if the math worksheet was too hard? What if, um, what if the learner doesn't, their writing skills aren't fluent enough and they can do the math, but it hurts their hand to write the answers, right? So there's a whole bigger picture of things that could be going on in that situation that also need to be assessed. And I think there's been such a focus on function that people think if they just figure that piece out, they're good to go and they can just write their behavior intervention plan and that's that. Um, so that's my really big, like first one probably could have just done that. <laughs> it's like, I just focus on that,
0: but yeah, I think okay, it's yeah. important. <laughs> totally. And let's just recap those four functions you're talking about. We've talked about escape attention access to preferred item or activity and, um, automatic
1: behavior. Yeah, Big four that tend to come up and that's going to be confusing because I'm about to say big four for something else, but those are the four <laughs> functions that are talked about most often. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. And on, you know, on the state's paperwork, at least in Ohio, when I have to do an FBA, those are the four, I have to check a box. Mm-hmm. So I think this topic is really important. And I also have, you know, thinking about specific kids and like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm with you. Big picture, all of these other, um, variables that play into the behavior and even just having a mindfulness about the complexity of it and how you're responding and reacting. So like sometimes you, your container isn't able to hold the big emotions of the kid or the big emotions of yourself, right? Yep. You, if you, someone's running, like I have, a, I have an example in my head of someone who's thrown a math paper, doesn't have the skills, he runs, and now we're like, you know, the um, crisis intervention team is like, okay, have got a runner. Yep. And there's two of us and I am such a, an emotional person and I'm reading his emotions and I'm like, just let him, just let him run. Just let him sit down. He's not, he's not hurting anyone. He's not hurting himself. I think, you know what? I think he needs a hug. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, he needs a hug. <laughs> um, of course, now that's like an extra layer of complexity. Like, am I going to be able to hug kids when we go back to school with COVID? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think that's, re- that's really speaking to me. So I'm like, okay, tell me more. All right. We've got a, we've got an escape maintain behavior and, you know, and I know all the reasons why he's escaping. So now what do I do?
1: Well, and that actually goes in well to the, the second thing that I think is important to address with challenging behavior, which is prioritizing the big four. Um, and these are the big four, big four preventative measures for addressing challenging behavior. This is from an article in Behavior Analysis and Practice um, from Ala Rosales in 2018 and colleagues. She wrote it with a few colleagues. Basically what they did is they looked at if we're seeing learners who engage in low levels of challenging behavior, what skill sets are present for them? So what are the big four skill sets that we need to be addressing to make sure that learners are developing sufficient repertoires to navigate the world instead of engaging in challenging behavior. So that goes into, you know, okay, I know that it's, he's trying to escape from his math work, but what are all the other things I need to be looking at around that, right? Um, So the big four, the first one is communication. So just, you know, what is their communication like? And you might have some learners, some students who they talk, you know, interact. Sometimes you're like, <laughs> just talking all day long, right? But as soon as something stressful happens for them, those skills go out the window. They just shut down and there's like nothing present for them, um, which ties into like some of the emotional regulation stuff we'll talk about too. But that's important to know. It's not just their communication in positive, happy circumstances. It's like, what is their overall communication repertoire? And how do they, like, I have a learner right now. We talk about, he likes to physically communicate, whether it's in a positive way or um, if he's like experiencing some sort of challenge, like he's a very just physical, like he'll take mom's hand and move it to what he wants her to do, or he uses his body, even though he has vocal language, he just defaults a lot to like physically making things happen and communicating with his body. But that becomes a problem if he's in a fight or flight situation and he, his go-to is to use his body to communicate because then it becomes dangerous very quickly. So r- there's a lot around, again, that could be a whole separate <laughs> conversation. There's a lot around communication to look at, um, but I did want to just highlight those couple of things. So that's the first one is communication. And we do have a webinar for the Do Better movement on functional communication that dives into some of this in a little bit more detail. I don't know if, um, if you want
0: me to send you that info to put in like show notes or something, but yeah. um, oh, it would be great. If you think that, I mean, can any intervention specialist or gen ed teacher take the class? They don't necessarily have yep. to be a BCBA.
1: Correct. Yeah. All of the stuff for the do better movement is designed to be for anyone that, uh, could be working with learners that y- you want to use behavioral science, but you could be a parent, a teacher, a BCBA we try to use language and video examples that would connect for anybody. The main, like, I guess, issue (laughs) is I, like I mentioned, I'm more of a one on one. I don't work in the schools regularly. So a lot of my video examples are with younger learners in their homes. But all of what we're doing has been and can be generalized to various settings. So I, I don't, Sometimes people get overwhelmed by like, oh, but this was just with this mom in a house. It's like, but it can be done
0: anywhere. <laughs> I promise. Oh, yeah. I totally see that. Because the example I gave you about the runner, you, you dove into communication. I'm like, yep, he was English as a second language. Yep. <laughs> okay, Okay. what's number two? <laughs> All right. So the second thing
1: from the big four is gaining attention and affection, which also would relate to the, the runner situation where you were saying maybe he just like needs a hug. So how, you know, what are their skill sets if they do need attention or they're they're in some sort of wanting of affection, do they again, do how do they get that? Do they use some sort of communication? Do they just sit and stew and then eventually have like a blow up tantrum because people didn't read what was happening? Um, do they constantly tolerate or do they constantly try to get the teacher's attention in ways that, you know, aren't pro social in nature? So Looking at that is really important because even, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes when you do think about like the more significantly affected learners, where their skill sets aren't as developed outwardly, where we're not seeing, you know, what all is going on for them, people have a tendency to think like, oh, then they don't have a desire for affection or attention or interaction. And they sort of just like, let those students sit to the side and they might even talk about them right in front of them and say negative things about them and all of that kind of stuff. Like they're not even a human being. So um, that's sort of an aside, but it's important to think about that. It's all of your learners, even if they're not, you know, obviously trying to get your attention and affection, we still need to make sure we're developing skill sets for them. Should that be something they want? that they're able to, you know, whether it's push a button to say like, you know, give me a high five or whatever, that they're somehow able to communicate that need for human interaction. Any, any thoughts about that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thinking, okay. Like I feel this is so perfect. Cause I feel like looking back, what, what can I learn from this situation was really hard for me. And in fact, at one, one point I had to say to my, my teammate, I have to tap out. Like I'm about to burst into tears and I'm shaking, you know, but, um, but it was, it was after I had said to him, do you need a hug? I don't care that you don't do your math. I don't care. I love you. And it's going to be okay. And he kind of, I almost like stunned him into a freak, like, Oh, okay. And he's like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) so that, but then after that, you know, I had, I was like, I need, I need the next teammate to come in here. Cause I need to deescalate. I was like, so upregulated from, yeah, you know, the intent, it can be really
1: intense. Yep. And it's important to recognize that for yourself too, like, and ha- be able to have that support to switch out, um, when you're getting too escalated yourself and need to, to transition,
0: um, to a more neutral state. Exactly. Um, Neutrality and mindfulness <laughs> is like, my favorite principle. <laughs> so
1: the the third one from the Big Four is engagement in activities. So this one is, you know, usually for a lot of learners, especially if they're in like mainstream classrooms, not typically a problem. But for a lot of our learners who, you know, for whatever reason, aren't picking up from the natural environment how to engage in various leisure skills or play skills, this can be really difficult because unless their day is structured one hundred percent of the time when it's just free free choice they tend to choose to do things that aren't pro social in nature it's, it becomes destructive quickly and it's not necessarily because there's some sort of like ill intent to it they're just like don't know what else to do <laughs> so the more you can engage like teach them how to engage you know with the things in their environment then obviously the less you see of that and we also have a, another webinar from do better where i talk about how to develop like play and leisure skills so i'll
0: give you that info too Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm thinking in the context of a school, this could look like me as an intervention specialist coming up with a work plan or a work board or having workstations and the child has to go through with a checklist and you would have to directly teach them how to engage with those work, the, the items on the work plan, their IEP goals.
1: Yeah. And I love that you said directly teach them because sometimes people will set up that schedule and then I'm called in, or you might be called in to consult, and the kid's like running around the room, like doesn't have any skills to actually do the things on the work schedule. And, and they want to know why the challenging behavior is happening. It's like, well, what have you done to teach them how to do this work schedule? And they say, oh, we haven't. They, that's just the expectation. They're supposed to do it, right? Um, and unfortunately, that whether, again, I've been in you know, general education classrooms, even in, up to like third grade where the children have zero diagnoses, but nobody's ever taken the time to explicitly walk them through and like hold them to to the expectations and like model and teach and reinforce those things. So it's important. It's not just a matter of like
0: saying (laughs) that they will engage in activities. It's teaching them how to do that. Right. And I think this is where having paraprofessionals or classroom aides could be vitally important. I mean, that's yep. what we need to be putting them is on these work plans and then taking data. On. Okay. We taught them how to do it. And then now we need to fade out. And so that, that training to happen with the AIDS is what in our minds we want to see happen. Yep. So it's just a matter of getting the training done with a pair of professionals. Yes. And of course,
1: all of this like, isn't even happening right now. Everyone's on zoom anyway, <laughs>
0: but- Right. And it's almost like now we need to be coaching the parents on how, mm-hmm. you know, because parents are working while their kids are at home and it's incredibly stressful for everybody. And we're, yeah. we're pro- they're probably seeing different escalated behaviors. Yeah. So, okay. This is so this, this podcast would be really helpful for parents too. I think
1: it's, I, I think, like everything we talk about, and i I think you'll see that too, probably the more podcast episodes that you record that even though like your main focus is mindful literacy, all of the things that we tend to talk about in education and behavior analysis can be applied to like everyday life, 100%. even without
0: covid <laughs> oh yeah, i even i you know not to get off on a tangent but even like to our own behavior change, I saw you on your And your Facebook group talking about behaviors you were trying to change for yourself, you know, whether it's exercising more, eating differently, it's behavior, the science of behavior is everywhere, whether you know, it's there, it's like gravity. I've always said it's like gravity. Exactly. The last
1: one is my favorite one. Um, It's called the, from the big four is coping with tolerating and accommodating adversity. So this is where we start to get into that emotional regulation piece and really making sure that their skill sets developed around, you know, what do you do when things aren't going your way (laughs) Um, and how do they deal with that? And I think it's important for everyone to recognize that one person's adversity is not somebody else's, right? So like just... Just because I find nails on a chalkboard like horrible doesn't mean everyone does. Although I think that's a pretty broad one, but the, you may have a learner who like doesn't care about that. But if you stand in front of the light switch, they might lose it, right? So like, there's things that <laughs> like for whatever reason some students perceive as an adverse situation that um, that we may not even know. And what's really interesting, there's you know more and more people that are, whether they're autistic or have other diagnoses are coming out and sharing their experiences, you know, through books or blogs or Facebook pages. And it's really, and it's important to understand it's just one person's perspective, but hearing those different perspectives gives you a way to really tap into like, just because I can't understand why this is so difficult for you and you should be able to do this doesn't mean that I should just like push you through and like force this to happen. Especially when you read some of what the people write about, like, you know, there was one person that on the Facebook group talked about grass and how there was something going on with the grass for her. Um, There were bugs that she could see. She had really good vision. So it wasn't the grass, it was the bugs in the grass, but everyone thought it was the grass. So they were trying to work through something with grass with her and she didn't have the language to like communicate at that time that it was the bugs. Um, But anyway, so going off, but basically it's important to understand if you have learners who are reacting to things as if they're difficult, you know, like whether it's the math worksheet, if it's certain lights being on, sounds being heard, sitting in certain places, standing in certain places, whatever it is that, um, that they are not only able to learn how to like work through that and sit with some of that, Um, but also, you know, potentially you might have to modify things a bit as well. Like it it shouldn't be on us or, I mean, it shouldn't be on them to be accommodated to the way we always do things. Right. So like if a certain chair doesn't bother me, but it bothers my student who has to shift, right? Like why, like, does my student need to learn how to sit in that chair or should I just find a different chair for the student to sit in, you know, um, so, just because I can deal with the chair and she can't doesn't mean I'm right and she just needs to learn how to deal with the chair. So, that's part of it. But the bigger part or the other part is like also just developing these skills because, unfortunately, as much as we would like the world to always be in the way that we prefer it, that's just not the case either. So, recognizing that there are going to be situations where, you know, maybe maybe I want, we all wanted to go to a concert and it's in a stadium and there's only a certain type of chair to sit in there. And that's all that's available. And I can't do anything about that. If there's a difference between being bummed about that and like, oh man, this is the chair I do not like, but I'll deal with it versus flipping out and like, you know, throwing everybody's drinks everywhere and like punching someone in the face because it's the wrong chair. Right. So that's like, for me, that's the biggest important part of the big four is like, when we identify function and we figure out what's maintaining a challenging behavior. So back to the worksheet, I know I'm going all over the place here, but back to the math worksheet. If for, you know, that learner, it was okay. Well, every time the math worksheet is presented, they um, throw it across the floor and they get to go out in the hallway and they don't have to do their math. Okay. So we've identified that it's possible letting them go out in the hallway is not improving the situation. It's making it more likely that he'll continue to just throw the worksheet. However, if the math work is too hard or there's something about math that the learner doesn't like and all we do is say, "Well, the math worksheet's staying. You need to keep sitting here," but we don't give them skills to navigate that, to like, "Okay, he's his heart rate starting to beat faster. He's sweating. He's feeling like he wants to run away." But nobody's teaching him how to express that or bring himself back down and regulate that and deal with it. It won't matter if you keep the math worksheet there and try to make him do it. He's not going to have the skill set to work through that. So I think that's a big issue, regardless of whether people understand functional behavior assessments or not. A lot of times people just try to push people through difficult situations without looking at their ability to regulate and figure out what's going on and how to like deal with that situation.
0: Yeah. I love this because you really are saying we need to step back, take a look at the big picture. And for lack of a better term, the whole child, (laughs) (laughs) it's not behavior change is a science, but we're dealing with little humans and it's very complex. And so I feel like we, we talk about the big four, but then the four ways to prioritize the big four really, um, clarify what why it's so complex. And I feel like I'm thinking of this example, coping and tolerating with adversity. I'm thinking of like even wearing a mask. Just right? <laughs> going to say that. All right. <laughs> like, okay, I like, I'm a believer in wearing a mask. I really am. But I can hardly get through the grocery store right now, especially in this heat without hyper. And then I'm like, oh, okay, you're showing symptoms of anxiety it's okay. You can take your mask off in a little bit. And then after that happened a couple of times, I was able to say, you know what? I bet I, I probably should try a different mask. I, I bet there's a mask out there that won't make me feel like I'm gonna, that I need to run away from the grocery store. Yeah. Because then I, my mind is going, I have to be wearing a mask all day when I'm teaching. This is going to be hard. So even just like, if we take these things and think about how do we help kids stay safe in school? I am yep. sure that as a teacher and four weeks, I'm going to have to coach kids through their mask wearing skills. Yeah. And prioritizing, yeah. you know, because so many things go on when there's a challenging behavior, I think the, having the mindfulness to say, okay, what's my priority here? Is it that kid feels safe and loved in school? Or is it that he finishes this math worksheet? Right? Is it that I'm teaching him math skills or I'm teaching him social emotional regulation? Right. And that's a tricky part in the moment. Yeah. You have yeah. to really like have this conversation with yourself. <laughs> well, and I would argue that it's pr-
1: like, generally speaking, the priority should be the the safe, love, social, emotional regulation, because if those things are happening, the other stuff will happen faster and better anyway. So like if, I mean, and there's research to show, especially like when you're feeling stressed and things like that, if, just think about the, since March how how well have you developed some skills in the past few months like I'm sure very few of us could be like this has been the best life ever the past few months right um but so the, just given the research on that you know if if you disregard those things and just try to push through with the math worksheet you're not going to be successful at anything at that point right they're not going to learn the math and they won't have the social emotional
0: skills either, so. Totally. And I found myself like with distance learning, especially because we, I mean, it happened so fast and we were, you know, putting it together on the fly. Um, Parents, especially parents who have children and IEPs were really, really worried and concerned that their kid was going to fall behind. And so while they're trying to orchestrate these on, you know, distance learning activities, they're finding resistance with their children. And I was like, whoa, just don't do it right now. What all that matters is that you're healthy and safe and your kid has some source, some sense of normalcy and that we'll get to those skills. And I have no doubt in my mind that we can remediate and catch them back up. But right now don't fight because they need you. They yeah. need you to love on them right now. So if it's causing any friction, just stop. <laughs>
1: Before I move on to the, the last thing for compassionately addressing challenging behavior, I did wanna mention a few resources. I don't know if you wanna include these in the show notes as well, but obviously the work that you'll be doing with mindful literacy and everything that you're doing there will be really, really helpful. Um, and I think, I'm just kind of jealous that I don't live in Columbus <laughs> anymore, but hopefully you'll be doing continuing to do virtual things around that, so I know that you have the new nonprofit that you've created around that. Um, So people will hopefully be able to develop skill sets for their learners around mindfulness within that whole program that you have developed. Um, And uh, you have online resources for it too, right?
0: Yes. So I, this this has been such a journey. I I get this idea to start this nonprofit because when I did my dissertation work in the city school district, I was, you know, I'm I'm here to teach you how to read. I'm running a, a federally funded study. And then it was like, bam, oh, well, these kids are going through some serious trauma. And we can't go forward until we address their social emotional well-being, you know? And that just has always been in my heart, even though I've, you know, moved on from the study, moved on in my career. In the back of my head, I'm always thinking, But what, but what about, what about the black kids down the street who like just had to deal with some serious trauma and there, we already know the research and the, and the achievement gaps is atrocious. Yep. So not, but not, it's just getting, I feel like it's like the Matthews effect, you know, where the gaps just keep getting bigger. And so absolutely we need to make sure that we train our teachers in um, effective and effective efficient ways to teach reading, but also how to address challenging behaviors. Because as you said, if we have kids who are dealing with trauma, their brains are not available to learn how to read. Right, exactly. Yeah. So and if you have
1: what I found, if, if there's situations where like, I don't have the time to go through it, or maybe I don't even have the skill sets, because I have certain levels of expertise around challenging behavior. But when it comes to um, learning some of the more advanced skills around social emotional regulation. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's already stuff out there. <laughs> so um, I, don't, I don't know how, like, how deep the program's going that you're working on, but some of the resources that I found helpful, there's a website called Emotional ABCs that's for learners um, ages four to seven. And it's like a $10 per month subscription for families. I don't know how it works for the school systems but it's already it's like there's a scope and sequence there's lesson plans there's like pre activities and breakout activities like you could not ask for something better designed and the way that it's designed is very well the instructional design of it is amazing like they start out with really just learning what the different emotions are and like how to recognize like what's happening within your body and then it closes out with teaching an actual process to go through so when I'm feeling this emotion, what do I do? And how do I navigate that? Um, And it's all like, there's a ton of different online activities with it. So you could do just strictly online, or if you're doing a lesson as a teacher, you could do a whole big thing with it. So I did it with my son, but we just did the online piece. We didn't go into the whole like, pretend he's in school and I'm his teacher (laughs) aspect, because I don't think I could have held him for that long. But it's just really well designed in terms of helping because like, One piece of obviously social emotional regulation is even knowing what the different emotions are and how they feel um, and how to decide what to do when you're feeling that emotion. So I really like that one. And then there's also a group of people who have been doing a lot of work with acceptance and commitment therapy for children and teens, and they've designed various books and resources for that. So one of them is called Connect. And I'll give you the link for that. And that one's for same age. I think it's four years old, but I think it might go up into like 11 or 13. They also have a free trial, but they do like family or classroom based. I have not used it yet, but it's a way again to not have to reinvent the wheel. And they have built in lessons around like learning how to accept the way, like what's happening in your life and notice how you're feeling and like navigate that. Um, and the same similar vein, there's a program called D N A V. Um, the website is thriving adolescent and that's geared more towards like teens and young adults, but it's the same type of thing. They, they teach people how to notice what they're feeling. That's what the N stands for discover and be curious about the world around them. And then, um, there's the A is the advisor. So it's like the little person in your head, like when you were talking about the mask and you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm I'm having a panic attack right now. Like whatever thoughts are going on, like that's your advisor and like how to like, you know, just be like, thanks advisor for telling me that I'm good. <laughs> the world's not gonna end. Um, and then the V is for values, So learning how to like set goals for yourself and like work towards your values, but it's all designed for young learners and like for as young as four, up to like teens and adults, for me personally, I haven't been um, a lot of the like mindfulness and act type stuff. Whenever I read it, I have not been able to connect much with it, because I'm more of like the data, like analytical person, and it just gets a little too fluffy for me. I know it's necessary. I want my kids to like be able to do those things. And I know I need to be able to do those things. But it's just been really hard to like process for me. But the connect and DNAV, the way that they have stuff set up is just so, like, uh, the words are just better.
0: It makes more sense to me. So I don't know. But yeah, those are, I thank you for having these vetted resources from BCVA. It's really helpful because I think one of the things I love about behavior analysis is that it takes big ideas and big skills and breaks them down into steps, right? But if you don't know what, if you don't have the content knowledge of the big picture in mind, you can't break things down into smaller steps. And yep. that makes sense. And I don't think, I mean, at least in my training, it's really just been my own curiosity in life about social emotional regulation and mindfulness practices. I don't, I don't feel like we as teachers have the training, you know, I'll hear teachers say, well, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist, but you kind of are. You just, yeah. Know, <laughs> training. Um, so this is really helpful. Even if, I'm looking forward to checking this out because it's even, it's always been hard for me too, as an intervention specialist, because I don't really want to do a lesson on this, but it's a necessity and I need to build those skills in my own professional development. Well, the nice thing is with like, especially with the connect and emotional ABCs being online
1: too, we only all have so much time in the day. So it might even be something that like you can, again, give to a paraprofessional or give the parents to use as a resource at home, you know, just something that could be helping to build skill sets that influence the work that you're doing. If you can't be the one to like sit down with the child and do it too, you know? Yeah. So it opens the door for more time to be spent on some of these things. Cause that's the thing I hear about as well, whether it's in the sessions that we do for the learners I work with, like in home or in the school day, it's like, there's never enough time. Oh, we, we can't work on that mindfulness stuff, or we can't work on that social emotional Because we have to get through math, writing, you know, like they list off all the like, you know, common core standards or whatever. Um, So if you can't, then at least give resources to the people that are around the kid outside of the school day so they can hopefully um, do it too. But anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I mean, even if it's in the back burner, right, some of the times you don't really necessarily... maybe not explicitly, but as things come up. So like, I'm just thinking about myself being home with kids ages three, five, and almost nine. It's a little tricky with all those big feelings with three little girls. And (laughs) there's a range of development and a range of personalities. So um, for me, I had to like really break down, even just like the yogic principles, I was calling it the Bennett family summer camp. But like this (laughs) week, we're focusing on nonviolence. So please don't hit your sister when you're (laughs) out. How else can you handle that? So I feel like having like a structure and like you said, a scope and sequence to follow and at least to have as a resource or as a sprinkling, a smattering, it's really helpful. So finally, the last thing I know, this is so long, but so last
1: thing from our top three for compassionately addressing challenging behavior, this really gets in. So we talked about like what you need to assess and like the four different areas to to try to be making sure you're building skills. But now, okay, we need to teach these skills, right? So for me, the third most important thing for compassionately addressing challenging behavior is teaching the skills in a way that's effective. And there's a procedure we use in behavior analysis called shaping. I think in teaching, sometimes it's also similar to like scaffolding. So it's really just looking at where your learner is and like where they're currently performing. And you may, you may have a goal that's like 5,000 steps away from where they're currently performing, but you're not going to expect them to to go those 5,000 steps and minutes, right? Like you have to, to start where they are. So what I tell people is picture your per your students perfect day. And like, if they could do whatever they wanted all day long, what would that look like? What, you know, toys would they play with? What activities would they do? Who would be around them? Who would they be interacting with? What would they be eating? Just like what would their whole entire perfect day look like where you wouldn't see any challenging behavior happening at all. And then now this is a little bit more difficult in the school environment, but as much as possible, look at how you can slowly push them forward to what their actual like work day (laughs) needs to look like. So you kind of start out with like your extreme of like, this is where we need them to be. We need them to come sit down at their desk, do their math worksheet independently without engaging in challenging behavior. But currently, he would be content to just come in the classroom, sit at the computer and be on the computer all day, right? So how do we like, you know, shift from one to the other? Um, but in doing so, it needs to be like, again, those small baby steps. Um, so one of the the ways that you could do that might be if you if you have a learner as extreme as what I just described, where like they Literally, just want to be on the computer all day. Maybe you tie some of their math into computer activities. And then maybe during natural transitions, there's a like, you know, if it's they just came back from lunch, it's like, oh, sit down at your desk for a second and then they get to go to the computer. And you're slowly going to like build up the expectations. And again, sometimes people think like, well, I have this whole checklist of stuff I need to get done with the learner for the day. But your options are constantly battle over things and, and not get anything done and continue to grow and develop skill sets that are not beneficial for anybody or go where they are and like really slowly push in the things that are more difficult for them. Um, so and we see great success when we approach things from that way. And like it, it sounds like really small, like, OK, so you're telling me for an eight hour school day, the kid could be on the computer for seven hours and 55 minutes. Yep. (laughs) But, but even by the end of the first week, often we're, we're down to like only two hours on the computer because we started where they were and like systematically transitioned. that. So that's like a, a whole thing that would take, you know, we have whole courses on. Um, so it would be impossible to talk about in the whole entire podcast, but we do have another webinar, um, specifically on this concept. It's called demand fading, And then also on comprehensively addressing challenging behavior. So I'll send you that info too, Jessica. And all of these are free, the different ones that I've been mentioning. So people can like, you know, learn about these things and they can contact me if
0: they have questions or whatever. That is incredible. I, and I feel like, you you know, this was not planned, but you know, what you described was that my student and we eventually moved him to where he was on the computer all day. But then we were sort of, as a team, we were sort of stuck. We were like, okay, we could have him like looking like he's doing school, <laughs> but not, but for us, it was the hard part was how do we get that prompt fading step? How do we phase him out and start like reducing computer time, increasing actual engagement time? the hardest heart so demand fading
1: to you next know, as it's yeah and part of it really is looking at because like some people just don't break it down small enough so they might think like okay he's on the computer all day and we want him at his desk doing the math work but it's like there's um Steve Ward has this thing called a dimensions grid where you basically like list out all the possible aspects of that so when he's at the computer he's sitting over off to the side He's doing whatever game he might want to be. He gets to freely choose what he wants to do on the computer. Um, there's not as much that would come up for that. But so, like, just pretend those are the, the couple of things. He gets to be basically on his own, <laughs> and he's playing whatever he wants to do the whole time. So how, like, what shifts that to being more difficult? Well, um, if we wanted, like, if our ultimate goal was to come sit over at the desk and do the math worksheet, what's in between there. Maybe it's we bring the math worksheet to him and he just looks at it for a second and we just say, hey, this is the math for today. And he's like, cool, checks it out and then goes back to his computer game. Right. Um, And then the next thing might be like, here, do one problem, but you're doing it still like at the computer. He doesn't even have to transition and move anywhere. It's just like a quick thing. And you do it. Like, of course, the other aspect of that would be like what I mentioned before, figuring out natural transitions to, oh, he just lost all his lives. So like the game's restarting, (laughs) right? Or we just came back from lunch. So before we turn the computer back on, as opposed to it would be more difficult if we tried to interrupt him in the middle of whatever he was doing, right? So it's really looking at what's the, like what's, you know, the perfect day, what's his perfect life looking like right now? And what are all the different things we could do to mess with that? And then within that, what's the easiest, (laughs) and picking one thing at a time so like if it's easiest to try to do something with math when he's just first come back in from lunch and he's in like this happy mode because he loves lunch and whatever then we do it then so a lot of times it's hard and it's not always feasible either but if you can put in that work on the front end of like really problem like brainstorming about all of that again, the progress you make is so much faster because you're working at a level where the learner is and you're only shifting things slowly. Um, And I say slowly, but it means slowly, like you're only doing one thing at a time. But again, it can move very quickly if you're doing it
0: right. That's awesome. It's almost like just putting pieces of a puzzle together. Yes. (laughs) think of, you know, the early days of behavior analysis with BF Skinner. I think he said something like the rat knows best. Yep. And now it's like, we're applying the behavior analysis to children and it's always the child knows best. So you let yeah. it sounds like you're letting the child lead in a very gentle and intelligent way. Yes, exactly.
1: Um, and there's even, there's a new, it's not relating to this entirely, but there's a group, in the New England area called FTF Consulting, Dr. Greg Hanley, is he's in charge of that. He's a, a really great BCBAD behavior analyst with his doctorate. But he has, there's a, a woman who works there. Her name's Dr. Holly Gover. And she's been doing a lot of work with feeding research. And she showed recently um, in a training that we did, some of that work was demonstrated in a school system where they had learners who were needing to expand their their repertoire of foods that they eat. So that's not academic necessarily, but that is something that sometimes schools have to deal with. And it, it was all really similar to this, where basically like you laid out sort of the options for the learner and they got to choose like how far in that like difficulty did they want to go? Did they want to stay in their perfect day and not really do a whole lot? Or did they want to like jump forward and try like a whole green bean or something, right? Whereas in the past, it used to be so adult-driven with feeding programs, especially, but with a lot of things that happen, it's so adult-driven, and the learner doesn't have much buy-in or interaction around it, and then you don't see as much progress because how many of us in our, especially in our adult lives, how many of us are likely to continue to participate or do anything if we feel like something's just being shoved down our throat? Like we don't tend to stay with that, and that's like it's like getting going back to the masks. <laughs> There's plenty of adults rebelling against that right now because they see it as something that's being forced upon them as opposed to like a positive choice they're making for the rest of their community.
0: Exactly. And it goes back to just self-awareness as the care provider, as the teacher, as the caretaker and helping the child develop their self-awareness. I mean, that's that's mindfulness. And you can do that (laughs) in a scientific way and you can collect data on it. Yep, Exactly. I really enjoyed this conversation, um, and I loved catching up with you. And I cannot wait to check out these resources. Thank you very much for that. And before we close, I just I'm I'm wondering because because I, you know, I came to a district and I was like, okay, who's your BCBA? Because I need some help. And like, <laughs> well, we don't have one. And I was like, what do you mean? You sh- we should have a BCBA. And like, well, we'll contract with one. Okay, great. And we're, we find, we're, we have our first BCBA coming in the fall. Yay. <laughs> My question is, it, it dawned on me after coming out of a really strong ABA program that not every school di- school district has a BCBA. So I want to just clarify for you. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, we have intervention specialists who are talented and certainly knowledgeable about behavior change and dealing with challenging behaviors and so they're like the behavior specialist of the building but I just want to make it clear to especially people new in the field that um, there are board certified behavior analysts have gone through a collegiate program and, and on top of that rigorous study and training and they sat for their boards and they've had like um, uh, uh, practicum where they have somebody observing them in their behavior change skills. So there's just there's I just want to delineate the difference between someone who kind of colloquially says I'm a behavior specialist of the building versus I'm the behavior analyst and I'm a BCBA.
1: Yeah. So I and I do think that's an important distinction. I think I kind of go both ways on it because I've met behavior specialists, intervention specialists, teachers, even paraprofessionals who are just kind of naturals at, whether they've taken a class in behavior analysis and learned about the science or not, they just, the way that they like take in the world is the way that they would learn about in their class. And if they, a lot of them do end up going to get their masters and become a BCBA. And when they take the coursework, they're like, oh, I've already been doing all of these things. Now I just have names for it, right? So, So it's important to recognize that And then kind of the flip side of it with behavior analysis, our science is growing very rapidly. Uh, Not the science, the field, sorry. The science is the science. The field is growing very rapidly. So right now we're in a position where um, 50% of the people working as BCBAs right now certified in the last five years. That's a lot of new people that don't have a ton of experience that are obviously going to be filling positions because they make up half of our field. So while they'll have a very good understanding of the science and excellent recommendations to make, it's always important, as with any field, to to really vet and understand what people's expertise and background is, but also looking for people, whether it's a behavior specialist, teacher, paraprofessional, BCBA, people who can work well together and collaborate and not get on any sort of like, well, I did this program, so I know more, you know, or well, you've never taught in a classroom so what do you know like in having those like kind of matches where they're <laughs> trying to just like one up each other but really have like recognizing everyone has like unique expertise to bring to the table and developing plans based off of that but if there is any districts where they have the resources to hire a BCBA but they're like well we don't need one because we already have this person over here and they they don't actually have the same training and background it definitely would benefit them to bring in a BCBA again just to build up that uh, collaboration among people with like different expertise.
0: Yeah, totally. And I've seen too, I mean, you, it comes back to the kid, like, are we making a difference today with them? Right. <laughs> no, but okay, we need to change. And I've seen like, it's, and again, it's hard to see the forest from the trees, especially when you're the teacher and you're so emotionally invested in your student to have that person from the outside say, have you, ch- have you thought about it this way? Let's try this. And then when you make the plan, everybody has to commit to that plan. Yep. Right. So it's like you and your husband with your with your son. Yeah. <laughs> this is the plan. We have to follow it until we agree that the data is not showing us that we have to change again. Yep. So I think that's really important too. Yep. I say, hey, the BCBA said this is the plan. We've got to do it. We've got to at least give it a try. You know, we cannot veer from this plan because then we won't know if it worked or not. Exactly. Yep. The one, the only caveat I give to
1: that, and I think this is just kind of common sense, but unfortunately it's not. If the BCBA or anyone gives a plan and the learner's behavior escalates, like dramatically, something's not right. Um, So that would be my time. Okay. Like, you know, back to the math worksheet example, if for some reason, the only plan that was given was he just needs to stay in his chair and do the math worksheet. And the kid starts, you know, trying to like Throw the computer across the room. Some people would say, nope, you still have to follow through with that plan because you've set that expectation. And I have a whole podcast episode on why I don't think that's okay. So I won't go into too much detail. But the point being, you really risk shaping up worse behavior if you um, blindly adhere to a plan where it's clearly escalating the student um, just out of, well, this was our plan. <laughs> yeah. So having like a, and it, within your plans, there should be a decision point of, if the behavior escalates pull back and reassess, but not all plans include that for some reason. So um, I do like to put that caveat in there just to make sure people aren't like blindly following something that's clearly not benefiting. And sometimes you'll hear the like, well, it'll get worse before it gets better. But I like for me and my you know 15 years of experience, I haven't met a situation yet where like in the moment it was worth it, right? Like having that negative qualitative experience for the student And the like 45 minute tantrum that could have, could erupt or whatever, because I put my foot down and said, no, this has to go this way because this is the plan I came up with in the grand scheme of things. When I look back on it, it's like, no, that wasn't worth it. Right? Like we could have done something better there. Um, So that's something I've really transitioned for myself over the years of like starting out where it was like, well, we put this plan in place. We need to see what happens if we write it out within the first few minutes. If we see the learner, like is escalating, we pull back and reflect. And sometimes we do have to do what I call dropping the hammer where it's like we've pulled back and we've reflected and we've made all the changes and we've assessed all the things and the learner is toeing the line and just like, I'm not moving. (laughs) I'm not budging. And you do have to push through a little bit of discomfort, but there has to be like really well established procedures in place for that. It shouldn't just be like a blind, well, we said this is what we're doing and too bad if he's
0: escalating over it. I think that's really wise and it's really, I think it's really empowering too. And I go back to, and you, and this is like with your do better movement, I go back to the importance of having a community, not only in the work environment that you're working in to collaborate with people, but also outside of it, because so many people have different experiences and um, different perspectives that could be helpful to that child. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I am just delighted to share this on the on our new podcast. so yay, and I, um
1: i I know I've talked a lot,
0: but I did want just to kind of like close
1: it out from what we were talking about there. Do you mind if I share the quote that we talked about? Oh, I would love it if you did that. Okay. <laughs> I quote on my wall. <laughs> so this just kind of like brings everything home um with the different aspects of challenging behavior that I was discussing. And that whole like the child is always right. It's like what we do as the the teachers or the behavior analysts that really affect things. So um, this is from Hiam Gwanoet. And it says, I've come to a frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element in the classroom. It's my personal approach that creates the climate. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. As a teacher, I possess a tremendous power to make a child's life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated, and a child humanized or dehumanized. So the things that we talked about, is like the three important things for compassionately addressing challenging behavior, if you do those within this quote, you would be the one humanizing the child and de-escalating things, um, and that's what we should all be aiming to, to do in our work that we're doing, whether we're teachers or behavior analysts or parents or whatever else you're doing with children.
0: hundred percent. I'm in tears. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. Thank I you. wish those were my original words, but they're not. <laughs> well, the thing is like, you know, being able to make connections is what we want for our students. And that is the whole purpose of learning how to read. That's the whole purpose of being a mindful learner. And so you just, you just modeled that beautifully. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> All right, Megan, have a great rest of your day and stay stay safe and cool in Florida. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks again for having me. Of course. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. Make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening. With the deepest gratitude.